once you start to get a little bit more confidence in your choices, you can step out of the box that you've created for yourself. And, and once you do that once, it becomes sort of an addiction to keep trying to do that and keep trying to make these things that shouldn't make sense together really, really play well together. The other thing that is interesting too is to realize that three-dimensional objects become really exciting in a collection too, especially outdoors. And then you start to think about your entire environment as being a place to experience art. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we're speaking with Dan Salak. Dan is a founding partner of Subject Matter, a creative advocacy firm based in Washington, D.C., and he's also currently the chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. Collect Wisely is an ongoing series of interviews with collectors from around the world in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and in doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. Each Collect Wisely episode brings you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. My name is Sean Kelly, and I've had a gallery in New York since 1991. Welcome, Dan, and thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Um, under slightly unusual circumstances, I have to say, because this is the first interview for Collect Wisely, but that we've done um, in the COVID era by by remote control, as it were, because we're both uh, in, you're in Washington, I, I'm in New York, so suitably socially distanced. But I think of anybody who can communicate via Zoom, you're the person I'd like to be talking to. <clears throat> so, Dan... How did your uh, interest in art start? Did, do you come from a family of collectors? I, I come from a family of collectors, but uh, not art collectors. My, my mother and father were passionate collectors of American furniture and silver from the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And I spent my weekends being drug around to antiques fairs and to antique dealers all over New England uh, as a kid. So I, I grew up around passionate collectors, but they were collecting something very different. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a small town called Danbury, Connecticut. And uh, to give you a sense of how passionate my parents were about their collecting, they actually went to the uh, National Archives and found a uh, architectural design of a colonial home that could have been built in Connecticut at the time. And they went all up and down New England buying the component parts of what would have been houses that were being torn down and uh, being built back up as, as new sort of 1960s and 70s homes and brought it all back to Connecticut and actually built a colonial house on a modern frame using all original parts. Wow, which you could never do anymore. I mean, it's it's truly it was a phenomenon. I, I would I would say that that constitutes fairly obsessive compulsive collecting behaviors. So, yeah. so, so I, I definitely got the I got that gene from them for sure. And do you have siblings? 
uh, one brother. And does he have the same passion? He, he collects modern furniture, but, um, you know, not, not as obsessively. I, I got the obsessive gene. So it's always so interesting when we talk to people who um, grew up around parents that collected, there's always two very definite responses. Either they got the bug and they love collecting, or they went in completely the opposite direction and can't bear it and don't want anything to do with it. So clearly you and your brother both got the bug. Well, what I, what I remember about it now, too, is it was their community. And they had all their dearest friends were collecting with them. And they got very involved with the, the Yale Art Museum. And they spent a lot of time with curators and dealers and collectors. And it was a really small, passionate community. And I think that was part of their social network in addition to something that they loved. And they, they really spent time looking at furniture and turning it upside down and pulling out the drawers and, and really looking at the, the markings. And it was, it was all about connoisseurship. It was all about trying to find the, um, the very best of the best. Even if they couldn't own it, they wanted to know what it was and where it was. Well, those are two things that we talk about a lot on Collect Wisely, connoisseurship and whether <clears throat> that level of, of, of attention to detail is, is, is still alive and well today. And the other one is, is this notion of the collecting community and it becoming, you know, collecting becoming a, a social activity as well as a passion. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people who talk about, you know, going to art fairs and collecting and moving around, they're very, they, you know, it becomes very much um, a central plank of their lives. Um, it, it is their community in many respects. Yeah, and I think that's what's so gratifying in a way. It's not, I think at a certain point you realize there's only so much art you can buy and then it becomes about the limitless amount of art you can appreciate and it's more fun to appreciate it in conversation with other people. And I think about all of the people I've met in this journey of collecting who have just taught me so many things and given me so much perspective that you realize it can be a very singular pursuit but i think it's it's greatly enriched by the fact that you can interact with other people and and hear other perspectives and fight about art and talk about things you love and and um i think that adds a lot to the journey of collecting as opposed to just putting your head down and just trying to buy the most expensive thing one of the things i think is <clears throat> you're the chair currently the chairman of the Herschel on the board of the Herschel smithsonian museum in Washington. Um, but one of the things that I think is super interesting about you is that you, you are somebody who thinks very deeply about the, the, the social context for art. I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say you didn't seek out being the chairman of the board of the Herschel, you were asked to be. Um, and you are very passionate about what you collect and your, your home environment. Um, but equally, you, you have a very strong sense of your responsibility to the community, the social community around the Herschel. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those three things intersect, your personal collecting, your family, the house, the Herschel, and, and, and your business, which is a very creative industry? I think a lot of it is, um, I th when I think about the Herschel, a lot of what we try to do there is... Um, think about ourselves as a, a place where people can truly learn about art who 
at any level. And I think it's really important being a part of the Smithsonian about 75% of our visitors and it's almost a million people a year are first time visitors to any art museum. So you have people on the national mall who are there to go to the air and space museum or natural history or, and really on a, a sightseeing trip. And I think our job is to give them an incredible first experience and exposure to art. But we also want to be a part of a global art conversation. So we're really starting with people who are right at that entry point of art, you know, hopefully a lot of young people all the way to the most sophisticated collectors and curators that we want to be in conversation with around the world. And I think it, it creates a really interesting challenge. And on top of that, you're right in the middle of Washington, D.C. So it, I think naturally art that's about the world and the environment and the issues that we're grappling with become great fodder for us. And I, I think, I, I feel like I've taken some of that into our collection at home, but a, a lot of it is if you live in Washington, it's, it's hard not to, to look at art through a political context. And I think, you know, some of the things that we own definitely do that. And I think a lot of what the Hirshhorn's trying to do is be at that intersection of uh, the most pressing concerns in the world. And I think when art does that, it's, it's really effective and powerful. I mean, I'm correct in saying, I think that the Hirshhorn doesn't charge admission. So it's, yeah, it, it's fairly, it's fairly rare in that sense, because as the as part of the Smithsonian, the national, you know, the, 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 the country's national museums, their charter is, is not to charge admission, unlike say the modern or the Met or the Guggenheim. Yeah, and that gives us, a, that gives us a, a strong advantage, which is we, we have a lot of freedom. The curators and the director have a lot of freedom to do the shows they think are really important, yeah. and to collect the works that they think are really important. And I think as the Hirshhorn has evolved from the collection of a single benefactor, Joseph Hirshhorn, to the diverse museum it is today, it, it's really become more about contemporary art and art that's about the issues facing the world right now. We've invested a significant amount in uh, video art and multimedia works and performance that tend to be more about what's happening in the world right now as opposed to just beautiful objects. But it, you, you mentioned, you know, being in Washington and, the, and, and there being a political lens. But, I mean, if I think about your collection, I, I really don't think about it as having a political lens or a particular a political opinion at all i mean how do you see that as having filtered into the collection um in, in in bits and pieces i mean i think um you know one of the works that i i love in our collection that we've had for quite a while now is um, one of ai Weiwei's marvel surveillance cameras and i think about that artwork as being layered it's his personal experience being under surveillance it's an exact re replica of a camera that was trained on him in his studio when he was in house arrest but it also was how appropriate for the moment yeah it, but it was also years ahead of the discussion about how surveillance would first take over uh europe and now you know really in the united states and and it's a subtle political statement but i think a pretty powerful one um but isn't that an outlier within the collection because i've always thought of your collection as being much more based in minimalism yeah, I think it's minimalism, these beautiful objects, um, but maybe artists who are also thinking 
politically or thinking about the world. I mean, I think about an artist like Richard Long, who is making beautiful, minimal objects, but he's thinking about the earth and the environment and materials. So it's, it's probably more subtle than it is in the museum collection, but I think there's a, you know, there's an undertone uh, of, of politics, I think in, in almost any great work of art. Well, certainly um, in any, in all great works and in good works, I think you can, you can always sort of interpret them politically. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Richard's and I've always thought the work was way ahead of its time, much more, sort of associated to Arte Povera in many respects, which kind of had a political position when it first emerged. So I think about him going to collect white China clay from uh, the, the earth near his home versus going to a paint store uh, to create something that ends up looking very painterly, I think is an, is an interesting thing uh, with, with, with a beautiful outcome. Totally agree. When, when I think about your collection, one of the things, you know, we've talked over the years um, a lot. And when I think about your collection, I, I, I think that you've made a kind of really interesting um, journey with the collection. Because I think when we first met and talked a lot about the collection, you were trying to, in a way, make this perfect inviolable object which was the, the totality of the collection. And it was almost like you're always trying to find the perfect, the perfect thing for the perfect wall that would relate to the artwork near it in the perfect way, uh, which I think is an impossible task and, and is a sort of breathless activity, an airless activity. And I think over the years, what I've seen you do is, is open up to allowing quite different conversations to occur in the collection which has made it much richer. Can, can, I mean, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but if you, if you do or whether you don't, can you talk about that journey a little bit? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and we've talked about this for years. I, I think it's about giving up a little bit of control in a way. Um, I mean, you and I had an interesting experience with my wife who fell in love with a, a large Candida Hofer photograph that's probably the exact opposite of everything we have in our space which most of which at the time was black and white and then you brought this big beautiful uh photograph in that was really mostly pink and it just created this really interesting uh dialogue in a room and and brought the whole room to life and i think that was sort of a lesson to me and and we've continued to do that of trying to find things that really mix it up and that you know it, it can't all be perfect and um I think we've learned to sort of relax a little bit around the rule. Yeah. And yeah, think, at some point you end up with a collection and it's all black and white. And I think now what we've realized is that the, these moments that are unexpected actually breathe brand new life into things that you love and, and make them that much more interesting. It, it also happened to make Elizabeth very happy, which yeah. is very good. Yeah. Thing because yeah happy, I, learned that, happy, I learned that lesson too. I, I can happy, get happy, up the leeway. Happy, <laughs> But I do, I do think that, you know, if, if one had all the money in the world, you know, and you could form this pure, perfect collection, somehow in that moment there would be something incredibly sterile occurring. And one of the great things that I love is to go into somebody's home and see the personality of the collection shine through. 
And I do think that those, those sort of pink or purple moments, as we might pray, you know, describe them, are actually a lot of fun and they're, they're very interesting to allow some air in and allow things to breathe and also to play against type. I mean, I think playing against type is always a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And that, that's definitely something I feel like I've learned over time. It's, it's you start, once you start to get a little bit more confidence in your choices, you can step out of the box that you've created for yourself. And, and once you do that once, it becomes sort of an addiction to keep trying to do that and keep trying to make these things that shouldn't make sense together yeah. really, really play well together. And, um, you know, I think the other thing that is interesting too is, as we've gotten into this is you start to realize that uh, three-dimensional objects become really exciting in a collection too, especially outdoors. And then you start to think about your entire environment as being a place to experience art. Um, and, and the other thing is, I, I think, you know, we come at this from, uh, you know, we're not spending millions of dollars on artworks. And I think you start to embrace the fact that you can find these amazing things that aren't the most expensive, that aren't the, you know, if you love Donald Judd, it doesn't have to be a stack. You know, you, not everybody can can buy a stack, but Donald Judd made amazing artworks. He made amazing prints. And I think you can immerse yourself in, into the world of an artist and find out that they were making high quality objects at, at many levels. And I think that's a really interesting thing to focus on because, you know, as we're entering a time where the economy is going to be pretty rocky and I think we all want to live and experience with art and, um, you know, it can't always be the, you know, the most iconic thing that an artist has done that that's, uh, it can still be important. It can still be beautiful. It can still give you huge amounts of joy. And I think there maybe is an over-focus on the part of the art market that's, you know, seven figures and up. There's a lot of amazing work that is being or, done at or, all the or, or purely sort of iconic in a very focused way. I mean, there's, as you say, there's, there's a richness to any artist's body of work and, you know, Richard Long's a good example. I mean, very, very early on, um, I, come, I come from Bath and Richard comes from Bristol, 12 miles apart in the West Country in England. And I always loved his work. And very, very early on, um, I bought um, what was essentially a book work by him, which was two handprints in mud in a book with no text. It was, it was a, a simple work. And, you know, that work for me, which I still have, probably, probably cost £100 at the time, which was a huge amount of money for me, embodies a lot of what he's gone on to do ever since uh, in, a, in a really profound way. So I think there's a, you know, with great artists, there's a richness to the work and you don't have to be spending a fortune and it doesn't have to just be the most iconic work. Well, I think about an artwork that you, that you own that I've seen in a show you did uh... You know, I, I absolutely love Joseph Boy's Capri Battery, which yeah. is a simple work in a large edition. But it's, you know, I, I think about it on a number of levels. I mean, one, it's just a, a brilliant idea to attach a light bulb to a lemon. It's saying a lot about the environment and sustainability. It's really interesting object to look at. And, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's a work that maybe is, you know, twenty or $25,000 when you can find them but it's also in the collections of a number of major museums around the world. It, that's a great example to me of an accessible artwork to a degree that you know, says a lot in a pretty small package. 
and and is just a wonderfully i mean i i think sometimes we forget how much humor uh, injects itself into the art world and and is valuable in the art world and i love the idea of a battery you know uh, which contains acid um being a lemon which of course has acid in it and the capri battery being this small object, this bright object that brings the Mediterranean into your home and, and you know, doesn't like the bowl, but gives you this whole other feel. So I think conceptually and formally it works perfectly, but also it's, it has great humor. Well, that's what I've always, as I've learned about art over the years, I always feel like there are these moments where you see things that just wake you up to new ideas and seeing a piece like that wakes you up to a new idea about how an artwork can be made and, and sustained, you know, that it, it doesn't, it has to be changed on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating part about it. I, you know, early on I saw um, at the Hirshhorn, Alan McCollum's plaster surrogates, which I, I've always loved. And, you know, as somebody who didn't know that much about art when I was younger in Washington, just working in politics, I saw a set of these plaster surrogates and, you know, you, it immediately registers as an artwork to you, but then you realize there's nothing in the in the picture plane. And it's just sort of like a big aha moment that makes you realize how genius artists can be. And every time you have one of those experiences, it just reminds you how great it is to be engaged in thinking about and collecting art because there's so many ways that can hit you. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, the same about, um, you know, the you know, the work of Idris Khan, you know, the layering and layering of different images. I mean, those, that's another example to me of just something that hits you where you just haven't seen something like that before. And all of a sudden it, it just becomes something that you, you want to learn more about. Right? Yeah, and, and, I, and that really drives a lot of what we do. It's when you start to see things like that or Donald Judd, you're, you just, you have to know more and you have to find a way to get deeper on it. But there's a scale thing there as well, which is very interesting because it doesn't have to be monumental. It has to be monumental conceptually in terms of what it does to your head. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big object. Yeah. <clears throat> so if we were lucky enough, as I have been, um, to walk through your home, would we be, or, or you know, the environment in which you live with art, would we be finding lots of small moments that prompt thought or would we be finding lots of monumentality? or both in juxtaposition? I, I think it's a mix of both. Um, you know, we, we're lucky enough to have big volumes, and, and I think we've taken advantage of that in some cases, but then I think there are also some interesting small moments. I mean, if you walk into our house in the entryway, we've got a giant Sterling Ruby painting that I know you have mixed feelings about. Uh, but I love, and I've, and then if you look to the right, we have a really small Tom Sachs work and it's one of the, the, his earliest works and it's just black masking tape layered into a frame. And I think the title of the work is what am I doing with my life? And, <laughs> and I remember at one point we were lucky enough to have him come over and, um, you know, he took the took the work, which is very heavy. It's in a steel frame off of the wall and was looking at the back of it and, and reminiscing about where he was in his career, trying to figure out how to play uh, in that conceptual league of, of, you know, some of the older people in, in that generation of artists. And 
you realize it was sort of an experiment on the way to something, but it, you know, it's a work that we've taken in now to, to three houses and it somehow it always does something interesting. Um, but it wouldn't jump out at you unless you really walked up and, and thought about it for a while. How many, how many pieces do you think you have in the collection? Well, maybe 35 or 40. That might yeah. be a stretch, but. Really? Way more than that, surely. No, we, we've always had a bit of a rule that um, if we own it, it's, we're living with it. Okay. And so we, we, have, so we have nothing in storage. So, you know, we've yeah. always tried to think about this as uh, about experiencing art and not, I don't see any scenario where we would become big uh, storers of art. I, I like the notion of, um, you know, something coming in, it's got to figure out how to become a part of the family. I hate it, to use the notion of upgrading, but have you changed or released a number of things or has is, is the collection remained fairly consistent? Yeah, some uh, part of it is we've, you know, we're serial home renovators, so we keep moving, which, <laughs> creates, which creates new opportunity. Um, this may be our final stop for a while, but, you know, part of what's changed is as we've moved into different houses over the last 10 or 15 years, it's created a new opportunity to, to move things around and, and try new things. We've, we've sold a few things here and there. And, and that's the one thing I think is interesting is I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to sell a work for the right reasons, which is sometimes you just fall out of love with things. And I don't think that should be frowned upon. You know, your taste changes, you evolve, and it may be something somebody else might love. But if you've fallen out of love with it, even if it's maybe worth more later, I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes it's just good to let things go and bring new things into your life. And I mean, part of the fun of collecting is about bringing new things in, into your life and experiencing them. I think if it all just sat still, it would get really... Yeah, it'd be static. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good editing every so often. And, and I think what's interesting to me now during the, the quarantine is it's actually been an entirely new way to look at the art that we've bought and you know, with, with some surprising results. I mean, there are some things that I just haven't spent a lot of time with that because we're so busy all the time that I actually have fallen back in love with. And then there's some other things where I decided, you know, this is okay, but I don't know if this is something for the long term. And I think this period of time where we're in our homes and not running around like crazy people all the time with our kids and work has been really interesting to, to reassess everything. And, and especially against the backdrop of a time where you're sort of questioning everything about what's going on in society. But there are five of you in the house. There's your wife, Elizabeth, we talked about, and there's three kids. Now, uh, and you're living with this work now in a very intense way, probably about, you know, eight plus weeks into this, this time period. Um, do they all share your passion or is it something very much that's your thing? Or is it a family passion? I, as well? I think it's kind of a family thing. I, and, and what I find interesting is that we've never pushed the idea of art on the kids. I mean, the only thing we've done is, uh, you know, we've taken them to Art Basel, some configuration of our kids really since they've been alive. And um, I think they, I, I want them to come to it on their own. So we don't really push it, but I can see that little by little there, they notice things. They've learned the names of the artists without, just because they want to know and they'll ask little questions here and there and I'll 
send them images of things to get a thumbs up or thumbs down just to engage them on it, but not to really push yeah, them. It all gets absorbed. Yeah. It's sort of getting absorbed um, in a good way, I think. And, you know, and certainly in the age of, you know, Instagram and Snapchat, you know, it all becomes great, uh, you know, backgrounds for all the pictures they want to take to send their friends. Do they need to, in, in the future, if they're collectors, do they need to ever go to a gallery or museum or can they just look at it online? I think you have to go. I think there's no question. And, and we've talked, actually, we've talked a lot about that. And, you know, and, and we'll go to museums together and, and I drag them to the Hirshhorn to look at things. And, and there's no, in my mind, there's absolutely no substitute for standing in front of an object and really even a conceptual object it, you have to be in the space with it. I think you can make some assessments of these things online, but I, I don't think you can learn enough from an artwork um, through your phone to really know what it's all about. Do you think that our intelligence or our psyche will change to the point where physically being in the, in the presence of the object will become unnecessary? I don't know. I, it, that would be a sad day for art if that happens. Uh, I, I think that being in the presence of these objects and, and walking around them and uh, moving through space, looking at artworks is, is one of the truly great pleasures that you can have in life. And I think you can learn a lot about art by reading about it and looking at lots and lots of images, but they're, there's no way, I mean, I take an artist that I absolutely love, which is Donald Judd, and I think his artwork photographs beautifully, uh, but you have no idea about a Donald Judd until you're, you see how invasive it is in, in a space and what it does to you when you walk into a room and how it juxtaposes itself against other objects in a room. And I think that, you know, that kind of thing would be uh, really bad if that were sort of lost on the next generation of collectors. Yeah. Well, and the Judge Show, which is up at MoMA at the moment, which thankfully I got to see just before <clears throat> we all sort of went into lockdown. Um, you know, one of the great revelations of that was what an extraordinary colorist he is. Yeah. You know, on, 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 the, on, on the sort of scale of, you know, almost an impressionist. I mean, the show feels almost kind of histrionic in terms of its color registry. It's quite, it's quite revealing, I think. Well, I, I, I think that's right. And I, I think, unfortunately, I, I didn't get to see the show before it closed down. And I've studied the images and the catalog because I really think he's a, a giant in the history of art, you know, particularly in minimal and conceptual art. And, you know, what also struck me is that he touched on everything. He touched on materials. He touched on color. He touched on space. Um, you know, and, and sometimes an artist like that gets boiled down to, oh, he's the guy that does the boxes. And you realize that's, you know, he, he was operating at, you know, really high level across so many different types of objects that it's just, uh, it's almost mind blowing. So uh, for you, with, <clears throat> would you say that Judd within the context of your collection is almost foundational? I think so. I mean, not in terms of what we own, because we only own one Donald Judd, but in terms of how I think about art, absolutely. And, and that's part of it. I mean, part of what I, I think is that I've gotten really comfortable with the idea that there's our collection, there's 
the work that I do with the Hirshhorn, which I love. And then there's kind of this museum and collection in my mind of all the artists and artworks that I think are just truly game changing. And I spend a lot more time thinking about the, the collection in my head than I necessarily do about the collection on our walls. And even, even at the Hirshhorn, because, um, you know, there's only so much artwork you can afford and there's only, there are only so many museums you can visit, especially now. So you start to really ruminate about things you've seen over time and museums that you visited over time. And it becomes a really interesting intellectual game to try and sort of remember all these things and remember where you were, what you were thinking. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about the Louisiana museum in, uh, outside of Copenhagen. And, and to me, it's just an experience of looking at art, it, it's just in a phenomenal place to be. They've got masterworks, they've got oddball things. It's in one of the most beautiful settings. It's completely relaxed. And I spent a lot of time thinking about those experiences to me are a part of this ongoing thought process I have about art that, you know, is really forms how I think about where things are heading. It is very interesting to me that you are, <clears throat> that you're thinking about Judd so much, given that your parents collected colonial furniture. <laughs> I mean, if you think about that leap or that jump to go from colonial furniture to Donald Judd, actually, if you know anything about Judd, it's not that big a jump because Judd was hugely influenced by Shaker furniture, by American, uh, by American, um, making, you know, making of furniture. I, I totally agree. And I, I will say this, I would love to take our, we have a, a Mexican box. I would love to take that Mexican box. And I would guarantee you if we put that in my parents' living room with a, uh, you know, a, a Queen Anne piece of furniture, or a Chippendale piece of furniture, it would look spectacular. And because I think they're, the principles are the same in a way. It's about craftsmanship and scale and balance and some of these things that are timeless and you know I, I wish that uh, we could do more of that I mean I it, it's interesting because my parents have moved out of their house after 50 years into a, a different kind of house that's a little bit more um, it's not completely immersed in that um, you know antique vibe and it's really interesting just to see the juxtapositions of their their furniture with things like black and white photography. And it looks absolutely yeah. stunning. And I think that th that's where I know you, you do a lot of that. I think that's where it gets really interesting is that great things can live together across time. And I think, um, yeah, and the dialogue is often really fascinating. I think. Yeah. That, that's something I'd love to experiment more as, as, as time goes on, because you start to realize once you've got the base of your collection, then you can start to look at things like, uh, Greek and Roman ornaments. You can look at, um, you know, different kinds of furniture from, you know, I think people are scared to, to mix and match. And in some ways that adds to that, that next layer of um, complexity to, to how things operate with one another. Yeah. For me, that's a very much the fun part of it. Can you, can you remember what was, um, what was the first thing that you ever bought independently? Um, hopefully it wasn't a Queen Anne desk or something. <laughs> the, the first, actually, the first thing that we bought um, when we were just married and moving into a small house is um, a local shop owner in 
Georgetown, where I live, had two Robert Mangold prints. One was his signature orange, and one was his signature green. And um, the grand total was uh, $1,500 for the pair. And I got them in the house, and I started to, to learn a little bit about it. It was sort of like right when the internet was starting to be more than just you know, email. I started to look into this guy, Robert Mangold, because I was just amazed at how great these things looked in our home. And I realized I started to say, you know, this guy's a real artist. He's in museums. And uh, it was sort of a way. So you didn't know who he was when he bought it. You just naturally gravitated. No, I just, I love the shape of them and, and how they look together. And it was unusual colors. And uh, at $1,500 when you just married, I mean, and you don't know who the artist is. That's a reasonable amount of money to spend yeah. on. We, 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 were, we were decorating our, our house. I mean, it, it, it came, you know, and that was one of those things where it was like a, a, a door opened because you started to realize you could live with these things that are in museums or artists that are in history books. And it was like, wow, that's really interesting. And, and the, the next thing we bought after that was um, I, I met a, an older dealer who had moved to Baltimore. I think he started in Boston named Tommy Siegel. And he was very involved. His whole career was Cy Twombly. Yeah. And, and just a completely passionate devotee of Cy Twombly. Yeah. And I ended up spending more money than I possibly could have imagined on, which was still not very much at the time on uh, one of the Cy Twombly Roman notes that we still live with today. We still have both of those pieces hung in our home and and the the Twombly experience just was another one of those you know once you start to really think about what he's about and what he's trying to do and how do you make sense of it and it just became a huge eye-opener and he spent you know hours and hours walking me through Twombly's uh, career and the things that he was doing and how he made prints and was was so passionate about it um, you know it's just another one of those eye-opening moments where you start to think about what collecting could, could look like. Do you think of yourself as a collector? Um, not really. I mean, in a weird way, not really, because we're not, you know, generally speaking, we're living with everything we have. And I, I'm more, I would say I'm more of an, an experiencer of art than a collector. Cause I don't, I don't see a scenario where, you know, somebody's going to want our collection for anything in the future. It's really about things that we love that we sort of put together and um, things may come in and out of the collection um, as we change the way we live. But I don't, I don't see it as a creating something that's going to live beyond us in any way, except that they're all, I think, really special objects. So you have no ambitions to create a public statement in some way. You get all of that out of your system through your association with the Hirshhorn. And, and, and what it sounds like is that, yeah, actually the collection is incredibly personal and, and very much lived with and felt, which yeah. to me is, is always, those are always the most interesting collections to spend time yeah, in. I think, I think I would say that, whether it's a collection or a group of objects, I would say that every single thing that has crossed our doors, at least I have, I'm not sure about my wife, have agonized over in terms of thinking about the pros and the cons and why do I love this versus that. And so I think it's, everything has been, there've been very few quick decisions. 
uh, a lot of it's been about really studying artists that we find really interesting and, you know, so taking a chance on bringing them into our, into our home. And, and you raised another point that I think is interesting to talk about, which is I, I do think I have concerns about this trend of lots and lots of private museums. I'm, I'm a huge believer in public museums and the value of mm-hmm. gauging people at scale in the way that um, museums can do, but, but private collections really can't. And I, 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 I appreciate and enjoy a lot of the private museums that would have been, that have been set up, but I, I really worry about the diversion of resources, especially now from public institutions that serve millions to, to more discreet right. private enterprises. And, you know, and some people can do both and support both and that's great, but I, you can start to see a, a trend that is, is going to be really challenging for museums as, as fundraising is going to get tougher and tougher coming out of this uh, pandemic. You, you talked about agonizing over and, and really thinking through any acquisition. And earlier on, you talked about, you know, going to Basel or an art fair um, with the kids occasionally. Um, is, is that somewhere that you buy or make decisions or is that more about research? I think it's... Because I cannot imagine you making snap decisions. About no. For me, it's... For me, it's not. You like to do your research. Yeah, for me, it's, it's mostly about research and seeing things and, and learning about new artists and... Um, you know, occasionally it's it's seeing something at an art fair will be a culmination of having to look at things over time. But I, I definitely have never been a, a snap buyer uh, or an impulsive buyer. I, I can't wrap my mind around doing that. Occasionally, maybe once or twice, there have been things that have just been instantaneous. But a lot of it's about the process of not just um, understanding that particular artwork, but the artist and how does it fit with everything we're doing. So it's, it tends to be a, an agonizing process, as you well know. Since, since Robert Mangold set you on the path, you haven't, uh, you, you've done a lot of research and you haven't strayed into being impulsive again too many times. Yeah, and look, I, I think that was an interesting thing to start with because we've, we've stayed in that world and we occasionally will break out of it and, and things like figurative sculpture have come into our thinking and, uh, you know, but there was something about the way that those two prints sat with each other that, you know, in some ways that's a foundational, they're, they're as foundational today as they were when we bought them. And make as much sense. Yeah, they make total sense. And it's funny, I've never felt the need to, I've looked at a lot of mangled paintings after that, and I've, but I've never felt the need to do anything more than that with, with Robert Mangold, although I've, I've thought about it. Uh, you know, they're, they're these perfect things in a way. Yeah. So this is the perfect moment. I, I, I do know you to be somebody who is very considered and does their homework and thinks a lot and thinks deeply. Um, is that, not is that just about, a nice way for you to say I'm indecisive? No, not only about what you, uh, I think you're very decisive. I, I think you just make the decisions when you're ready to make the decisions. I don't think that's being indecisive at all. I think that's being very considered. Um, but that's, that is how I know you to function. And, um, you know, I, I think you do that whether you're thinking uh, deeply about the, the importance of an institution that you're associated with or museums or a social context for art, which you love. 
or indeed decisions that you're making about things that you want to live with in, in your own environment. So um, you, I'm sure, have had many, many sleepless nights tossing and turning and disturbing Elizabeth whilst you pondered the ideal artwork that you could ever live with. So the ultimate question that I'm going to pose to you is if there was one artwork that you could choose to live with, um, it could be as inaccessible as the Sistine Chapel. Um, if there was one thing that you chose to live with, um, anywhere in the world, from any institution or collection or artist, what would it be? Um, I would say the artwork that I would most want to live with that's completely inaccessible is the, the Hirschhorn owns the marble version of Brancusi's Sleeping Muse. And it is such a spectacular object. And it, it checks so many boxes for me because it, is beautiful as an object. It's emotional. It sits in this three-dimensional space. It's incredibly minimal. It, it just does everything for me. I, I don't think I need to own anything else if I, if I had that. So the museum shut at the moment because nobody's allowed to visit museums. <laughs> You're the chairman of the board. Have you not, you know, have you not thought of ringing Melissa up and asking if they could pop it over for the evening? I, I bring it up on occasion, and, and, <laughs> and the answer is always the same. <laughs> they could just stick it in the back of an Uber and come over with it for the evening, let you live with it overnight. What's the but, problem? But it's, what's so interesting to me about that artwork, and I've seen it in different in, installments at the museum over many, many years, is it just it has an emotional quality to it that brings it to life. I mean, you can really feel it, and I think that's um, there's something really unique about that that doesn't exist in every artwork even even other great artworks yeah and i i've often thought actually well you're not that far from philadelphia it's sort of equidistant between the two of us probably and i've always thought that one of the most sublime experiences in the world is to go to philadelphia museum and see duchamp and brancusi in juxtaposition and dialogue and conversation with each other um, yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's, that's a very, un, in, for many people, that's a very unexpected relationship until one learns a little bit more and understands that Duchamp was actually Brancusi's dealer. Um, so that's yeah, a it's nice also, relationship. Um, it's also seeing it at, in that grand setting. I feel like the, something about the Philadelphia Museum is so different than a lot of other museums. It's, it's somewhat intimate in its overall scale, but it just has a feeling of grandeur that yeah. makes all these things somehow work together. Well, thank you, Dan. It's really been a pleasure. I mean, we, we get to talk to each other uh, privately about things and I always thoroughly enjoy it because I know how smart you are on, on all these topics. But it's really a pleasure to have you on Collect Wisely and to have you being smart for such a, a, an enlarged audience of listeners. So thank you so much for doing this. Great, it was great talking. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! Thank you.